Good morning. Welcome to Discovery's Digital Gathering. We are glad you're here. We are excited for what God has in store this morning. We want to invite you to download our app, which will help you stay current with our community and get further connected by filling out our new visitor card. Let's prepare our hearts for worship and for the adventure of discovering the good news of Jesus together. All right, meet me in Acts chapter 13 as we continue our conversation in the book of Acts. We've been calling this conversation ekklesia. That's a Greek word that translates uh, most directly to gathering. It's the word that's used in the New Testament to often refer to the church. We've been in these stories, these wonderful stories in the book of Acts to help shape our imagination for what the church was at that moment, right, as it's being created, but also to shape our imaginations for what the church could be right now in our day and age, our time and place here in Davis in the 21st century. Before we get into Acts 13, though, I just want to say today's a big day for uh, our community for a variety of reasons. Uh, If you're watching this as this is premiering, That's wonderful, and again, we're glad that you're joining us in this way. But also, today's the day that we are back in the Brunel Theater. And uh, while there's a lot of excitement around that, again, with the ongoing pandemic and some of the issues in in our elementary schools here in Davis and and just the, the way that this pandemic continues to just sort of rage around the world, we know that there's a mix of feelings, right, about what it means for us to go back Inside, So I just want to acknowledge that. I do want to celebrate being back in the theater, but I also want to say we're holding this very open-handed and loosely because who knows how long we'll get to do this. Obviously, we hope and pray that things calm down and we can just stay there indefinitely, but there's a very good chance that that may change in the not-too-distant future. And so I just want to say that I have so appreciated, I'm so grateful for all the ways that you guys have been flexible that you've rolled with the ups and downs and the twists and turns of the last 18 months. And so while today is a milestone of sorts, again, we're also not sure how long this will last. And so we will enjoy it while we have it, but we also hold it loosely because who knows what will happen next. This this is a a big day though for um, whatever context we would be meeting in because today is the day that we get to introduce to our church in person our new associate pastor Antonio Reyes. Antonio and his wife Gabby are joining our team. We're so grateful uh, for them. They come to us uh, from uh, Long Beach through Vacaville and uh, from a church, a great church in Long Beach called Revive that we have a relationship with. Um, And they're just going to be, I think, a wonderful addition to our team and to what God is doing here. He, Antonio, will be preaching next week, and so you'll get to see him in the digital space uh, if you're not able to join us in person. Otherwise, come to the theater next Sunday, and you'll get to hear from Antonio as he preaches for the first time for our church. All right, having said all that, let me pray one more time for us as we now enter into the story, Acts chapter 13. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for what is happening at Discovery, the ability to go back into the theater, the addition of Antonio and Gabby to our team, um, all the other things that are going on, mid-sized communities, short-term groups, baptisms, people being transformed. God, it's just a remarkable thing to sort of sit back and see what you are doing in and through our church. Father, now as we 
as we step into this story. This, the, the stories we look at today are so important, so formative for who we are as a church, for our mission as a church. God, would you help us to be present for this, to be attentive to your Spirit, open to the movement of your Spirit, speaking to us. Would we be obedient to what we hear? Give us the courage to respond in whatever ways we need to respond. We pray all of this again in the powerful name of Jesus. And everybody said, Amen. All right, a couple years ago, there was a song put out by a famous artist, extremely famous artist, actually. And the chorus of the song went like this. Use this gospel for protection. It's a hard road to heaven. We call on your blessings and the Father we put our faith. Now, pop quiz. Anybody know? Do you know who this artist is? This, of course, is Kanye West. <laughs> we start with Kanye because there is a theological issue. I would call it a theological mistake that's represented by these lyrics. And I know it's easy to pile on Kanye these days. That's not what I'm trying to do here at all because this is a mistake that's made by many, many, many people in the church, including many pastors and theologians. It's the mistake of what I would call the nounification of the gospel. The nounification of the gospel, turning the gospel into a, a, a thing, a mantra, a code, even a product or a charm or a talisman. Use this gospel for protection. The gospel, though, is not an object. And depending on uh, if you have some church background and what type of church background that might be, this next statement may seem slightly blasphemous to you. But here's the truth. The gospel doesn't save us. The gospel is not an object. It does not save us. Jesus saves us. The gospel is the announcement, the proclamation of that good news that Jesus is the one who saves us. It is an action. It is a verb. Now today's uh, teaching here in this, this Acts conversation is a little preview, a little taste of uh, a different conversation that we'll have later this fall. We're, gonna, we're calling it what we talk about when we talk about the gospel. We're going to get into that and define it a little bit more clearly. But today we get these two incredible stories of what we like to call here at Discovery gospeline. And the reason that word is important, gospeline, is because it, it, it brings us back into this sort of active uh, verb characteristic of the gospel, the active dynamism of the euvangelion. That's the Greek word that it gets translated into gospel in our Bibles. Euvangelion, good news. And I, again, I'm so excited about this particular part of our conversation because it is just so critical to who we are as a church, to our project here in Davis as an outpost of the kingdom of God, an outpost of the ecclesia. So Acts 13, we're going to move through two stories, two, two fairly large stories, and we're going to do it pretty briskly. So follow along in your Bibles, or again, you can find the, the Scripture on your phone if you have the app there. The beginning of the story, we're actually beginning in verse 13 of Acts chapter 13. Paul and Barnabas are sent out by the church at Antioch. This is a little bit of a review of where we were really the last couple of weeks. This 
wonderful church in this influential city called Antioch, right? We, we've seen what a gift they are to us here in Davis as sort of a model, a, a forerunner of, of what we want to be as a church. That church, though, uh, sends Paul and Barnabas out, go tell more people about Jesus. Antioch, what we've seen them be a listening church, a multicultural church, a church that practiced, actually like lived the ways of Jesus, right? And then, of course, a generous church willing to send out two of its key leaders like this. So Paul and Barnabas, they get in a boat and they sail from Antioch and they go all the way. Now we're in verse 14. They go all the way to Antioch, which is a little confusing, right? Like they just left there and then they arrived there. What's going on? Well, it turns out that in the ancient Near East, there were 16 or 17 different cities named Antioch. We might think, wow, that's pretty unoriginal. But in our own country, we have 18 Oaklands, 19 Newports, 30 Franklins. Let's not get too judgy here, all right? <laughs> so the Antioch they leave is this major city. It's, in, it's located in modern-day Syria, about 300 miles north of Jerusalem. And it's the third most important city in the Roman Empire after Rome itself and Alexandria. So major city, lots of influence in Syria, north of Jerusalem. And then they get in a boat and they sail around an island up to Pisidian Antioch, which is located in modern-day Turkey. All right, and that's where they, that's where they uh, sort of set up shop and where our story really begins. The first thing they do is they go to the Jewish synagogue. Now that might sound strange to us, like, hey, you're missionaries, you're going out to tell people about Jesus, why would you go there? Like, why would you go to church first? But remember, not everybody has heard about Jesus at this point. This is very much a missionary move. They go to the Jews first to let them know about Jesus, to tell them the good news. So they, they sit through the service, if you will. The leaders of the synagogue then offer them an opportunity to speak. Paul takes up the challenge of speaking, and he launches into this long, incredible, wonderful speech that includes Jewish history, Old Testament prophecy, all kinds of scripture references, and then it culminates ultimately in verse 32 with this phrase. I want you to pay attention to this phrase. We tell you the good news. Okay, We bring the euvangelion, the good news, the gospel. And here's how Paul says it when he's in the synagogue. He says, What God promised to our ancestors, He has fulfilled for us their children by raising up Jesus. He then quotes a couple more psalms. He references Isaiah, and then he wraps up with this. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know, we're in verses 38 and 39 now. I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through Him, everyone who believes is set free from sin, a justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. This is a type of gospeling that is very common even today, especially in American churches, right? The gospel, the good news of forgiveness of sins and the resurrection from the dead. If you, I'll say this a few times th this morning, but if you have some church background, you've probably heard the gospel spoken about in this way. You've heard gospeling in this style. Now, it's interesting what happens next. They get invited back to the, to the next week's gathering. Paul gets to speak again. He elaborates further. This time he goes, oh, by the way, this good news is for everybody. It's for Jews and Gentiles. And of course, this causes big controversy and they get kicked out. 
So they, they go on the move to the next place. Before we get to the next place, though, let's just summarize what we see here. When Paul gospels in the synagogue to a Jewish audience, he speaks for a long time. He uses their history, their story. He references God as Yahweh, right? The, the personal name of God that God gives to Moses. Paul references all sorts of Old Testament scripture as evidence for Jesus being the Messiah that the Jews have been waiting for throughout their story. So again, now we flip over to chapter 14. They've moved to a new place. They go to a a city called Iconium, and they enter again the synagogue first, and the same thing happens. Many believe, but there's this ongoing division about the Jews and Gentiles. It rears its head. They are, are having to flee then for their life, and they move now to a city called Lystra. And it's here in Lystra that I want to spend a little bit more time because we see something very interesting happen here. In Lystra, Paul and Barnabas encounter a man who is crippled in his legs from birth, and Paul heals this man very dramatically. We're now in Acts 14, verse 11. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas They called Zeus, Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to Paul and Barnabas. Now, Paul, despite being deeply offended that he didn't get to be Zeus, or at least that's how I would imagine it went down, (laughs) Paul responds like this. When they see the crowd coming and and wanting to offer sacrifices, Paul says, Friends, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? We are only human just like you. And then look at what he says. Here it comes. We are bringing you Evangelion. Here is the good news. We're bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything. And then, by the way, living God here is theos, different from the word used for Yahweh. In the past, he let all nations go their own way, yet he has not left himself without testimony. He's shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. This type of gospeling is not used as much in the American church. In fact, when it is used, you tend to hear some grumbling and complaining like, oh, I don't know about, I don't know about that. That didn't feel very deep. And I never talked about sin. Like, where was the, where was the scripture? We're going soft here at this church. But I want you to notice, Paul sets this whole thing up, both situations in the exact same way. Here's the gospel. Let me tell you the good news. When he's with Jewish people in the synagogue, history, scripture, the the personal name of Yahweh, culminating in forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Here, we don't get any of that, right? No forgiveness of sins, no talk about resurrection, not even a mention of Jesus by name. And, And lest you think that Paul is, you know, Uh, being too soft here. He doesn't pretend to be a god. He does not let uh, the Lyconians off the hook, right? He says, turn from these worthless things. That's repentance language. But he also doesn't come at them with all the same churchy 
language. Now, here's the interesting question for us. All right, which one is the gospel? Which one is the gospel? This, uh, this, this sort of question, we can tie ourselves up in knots with this when we think about the gospel as a noun, but when we see it as a verb, it really changes our perspective on this. Which one is the gospel? Is it the good news? Is the good news? that Jesus is the Messiah, the fulfillment of the Old Testament scripture, and because of the resurrection, there is forgiveness of sins? Or is the gospel that there is a living God who created this world and who is kind to us and who shows us that kindness by providing food and joy? Which one is it? And the answer, I hope, is obvious to us. The answer is yes. (laughs) Yes. Because it's not about which one is the right one. It's about the context in which you are gospeling. In the 1980s, when I was growing up in suburbia, that world was a lot like the synagogue in Pisidian Antioch. Arguments for Jesus from Scripture worked for people because they had some context for it. Where we are now, just in our our cultural moment, in our world, especially here in Davis in the 2020s, it's a lot more like Lystra. And so we need to begin our gospeling in a different place with things that people in this context understand. Now, here's here's an important thing I want us to hear. At Discovery, we gospel all the time. We are always proclaiming the good news of Jesus because this is our mission, right? To help people see this, discover this, recover this good news. And we do this in many ways. We certainly do it in our groups and community. We do it in the ways that we serve our city. I want to speak, though, for a moment about how we do this in the Sunday gathering because we get a lot of, we get probably the most questions about this context. So I want to say this very clearly. We gospel very intentionally in every gathering and in all aspects of the gathering, in the teaching, in the singing, in our announcements, in our, uh, especially in the moment called communion. We're always gospeling. And and we gospel both ways. We gospel in an Antioch style and we gospel in a Lystra style because we have people and we're connecting with people who are coming from from, uh, different places, some with church background, some without any church background. I want to speak to to those two groups of us for just a moment. For some of us, if we come from a church background, we might leave a Sunday gathering thinking, wow, that was nice, but I didn't, like, where was the gospel in that? Well, let me assure you again, we did it. We gospeled, but it probably means that we were gospeling in a Lystra-type way. And so I think there's an invitation there for you, my friends with church background. If you feel like, I didn't, I didn't hear the gospel this week, I want you to think about, well, maybe where was that? How did they do it? How did they communicate the good news of Jesus? I would argue if you look for it, you'll find it because it's there every week. For those of us without church background, there may be a, a week where we leave the gathering thinking, uh, I have no idea what they were talking about. Like, what is this justification, sanctification? Like, what are these words? <laughs> That's probably because there was more of an Antioch-type gospeling going on in that gathering. And again, an invitation. An invitation for further conversation, to ask the question. And we love these kinds of questions. What was that all about? What does that word mean? Where does that come from? 
Now, quick summary of the rest of the story. It's just a, fin a fantastic way that the, the chapter ends. Paul, once again, gets in trouble. Division about Jew-Gentile. This time around, he actually does get stoned. Like, people throw rocks at him, and he's under a pile of rocks. They leave him for dead. And then Luke says he just sort of pops up and is fine. Like, he just walks away. This wonderful moment of understatement. And then Paul and Barnabas sail back to the original Antioch in Syria. Now, here's what I want us to hear. As a mission-driven church, context matters. Context matters so much. It mattered to Paul and Barnabas, the ecclesia. It must matter to us if we take our mission seriously at all. It must matter to us. Now the question is, how do we do this? How do we, how, how do we help communicate the good news here at Discovery for our community in Davis? Now again, we're going to talk more about this later this fall, but today I want us to look at just one thing. So if you still have your Bible open, turn with me to Matthew chapter 11. There's this great scene where this guy named John, John the Baptist, is in prison. Now John is Jesus' cousin, Jesus' forerunner. He's the guy that baptized Jesus. He knew a lot about what Jesus was up to. And yet even John is having a moment of crisis, right? I mean, he is in prison after all. If I were there, I'm sure I'd be feeling the same way. So he's, he's wondering, okay, what, what is going on here? Is Jesus really who I thought he was supposed to be. He sends his disciples to Jesus and asks this question, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? <laughs> A little bit of shade there from John. Are you the one who's to come or should we expect someone else? Now, watch how Jesus responds. Jesus replied, go back. Go back and report to John what you hear and what you see. Report to John what you hear and what you see. And then Jesus lists a bunch of things. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf can now hear. The dead are raised. And the good news is proclaimed to the poor. It's always fascinating to me that as attractive as Jesus was, most of the people who were there in the moment watching this all go down were still like, like is this really it? Like, what is happening here? <laughs> Is it you or should we expect someone else? I love Jesus' response. First, notice what he doesn't do. <clears throat> he does not attack John. How dare you question me? He, he does not give a big theological argument. Well, this, blah, 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 you know, Old Testament, this, you know, all these different things. He doesn't parse the definition of what it means to be the Messiah or anything like that. He also doesn't go the pragmatic way, right? And say, hey, look at how big this, look at all the people that are here. Look at all the followers that I have. Look at how effective I've been. What does he do? What does he do? He says, look, what do you see and what do you hear? He offers experiential evidence. The blind can see, the lame can walk, the dead are raised. Decide for yourself, is that good news or not? Sure sounds like good news to me. What do you see? What do you hear? Is that good news? When it comes to how we gospel, our gospeling should be contextual, right? It should make sense. It should be good news in people's actual lives. But it also must be invitational. Come and see and hear and decide, is this good news? 
And this is where, again, that example that we get from the church in Antioch is so helpful for us. Remember last week, the four virtues of a mission-driven church? They listened and obeyed the Holy Spirit. They were a multicultural, multi-ethnic community crossing all kinds of, of barriers and boundaries. They were extremely generous with their money, their time, even their people. And they practiced the ways of Jesus. They didn't just think about it or read about it. They practiced, they lived this adventure together. What made Antioch compelling was not the size or how much power it had or how many programs it offered. It was a countercultural movement. It told a different story. It invited people to see and hear and decide, is this good news? In discovery, I, I believe wholeheartedly in, in my bones, I believe this to be true. If we follow the Spirit and not cultural pressure, and when I use that phrase, I mean the, the pressures that we feel in Davis to achieve, to be great, whatever those things are, the cultural pressure of Davis, but also the cultural pressure of the church, right? To be a certain way or to do things, well, this is the way we've always done it, right? If we follow the Spirit into the new thing that the Spirit is doing instead of bowing to cultural pressure, if we commit to celebrating our multiculturalism instead of just pretending it isn't there or whitewashing it, if we are generous and sacrificial instead of power-hungry consumers, if we live and practice the ways of Jesus and not just talk about it or study it, if we do those things, I, I believe that we will experience good news and other people will see and hear good news when they look at what God is doing in and through us. Are you with me? Are you with me? This is the adventure that we are on. I really believe this to be true. So let's go for it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I'm fired up even just thinking about this, but God, may we be a church where people can see and hear the good news of Jesus in the ways that we are obedient to, to your Spirit's leading, in the different kinds of the people that come here, the bridges that we build that cross divisions in our city. May we be good news in, in, in our generosity, the ways that we sacrifice for the good of others, not expecting anything in, in return. And may we be good news as a community that actually does the things that Jesus said to do, that practices His ways. It doesn't just think about it, talk about it, but actually lives them. God, as we do that, the goal again is not size, power, authority, whatever. The goal is to be a sign, a sacrament of the good news of Jesus. May this be true of our community. Amen. As we enter into communion response, I want you to just think about some of the things that we've talked about. Reflect on this great task of gospeling. What is the context we are in? How do we communicate and share good news into that context? Then I also want, to think, uh, I want you to think for your own self what good news means. As you hold those elements, whatever you have this morning representing the body and blood of Jesus, as you hold that in your hands and you remember what Jesus has done for us, this God who loves us and who has shown us kindness, this Jesus who is the fulfillment of the Old Testament story and through his death and resurrection, there's forgiveness of sins. As you think about what Jesus has done for us, 
Where's the good news for you this morning? Where's the reminder of the relationship that we have with God, the, the mission and purpose that he's invited us in, the, the healing and restoration that's going on in our own selves? So I want you to take a minute and reflect on what's your good news even right now today in this moment. Yeah, there's big theological words you can use to answer that question, but just in a very real visceral way, what has good news to you right now? And then when you're ready, take and eat the body and blood of Jesus. Over the past couple of weeks, we've ended our gatherings with these words from Hebrews. I think, again, these are good words for us in thinking about and reflecting on and then moving into action, right? This idea of gospeling, communicating good news to people in our context here in Davis in 2021. Now, may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep. May the God of peace equip you with everything good, everything good for doing his will, and may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Grace and peace, friends.